What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Westbound Train formed in Boston in 2001 and became one of the biggest U.S. ska bands that formed after the 90s. They played with Real Big Fish, Less Than Jake, Big D and the Kids' Table, Voodoo Glow Skulls, Streetlight Manifesto, and Suburban Legends. But unlike a majority of the bands they played with, Westbound Train played traditional ska, rocksteady, and old-style reggae. And they did it through a distinctly American, soulful lens. Today we talk to the group's lead singer, Obi Fernandez, and get the full story on this incredible band. I think it's really important to remember, as we get older, to continue to make to make art. Westbound Train has gone so long without putting out an album. Could you imagine doing something like that, Aaron? What, waiting 13 years to put out an album? Yes. I guess, I mean... I mean, I, my I, that'd be weird if my band put out an album right now. <laughs> <laughs> New Flat Planet album announced here. No, but a uh, much better option is a, a new Westbound Train album. And uh, it's great. It's a great album. It's a great album. I was really glad they sent us over the uh, advanced copy. And it was really great to talk to him and really get the full story. There was a lot of things about the band I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't understand why kind of at the peak, they seemed to just sort of disappear. So yeah, that's something we could definitely get into. Sometimes, you know, things don't end with a bang. They just kind of disappear. Yeah, like a, like a train into the fog. Ooh. I heard a rumor on Twitter Wow, that Eric Andre did merch for Westbound Train at some point. Yeah, yeah. This is true. Yes. Wow. It is true. <laughs> we took him. Where, who, where did, how did that come about on Twitter of all places? So I'll tell you. I'll tell you how I saw it. Somebody, so are you familiar with Scott or Nah, the Twitter account? I am not. I feel like I maybe I should be. So it's, uh, they just tweet at celebrities, do you like Scott or not? It's kind of a joke, but it's funny because it's, 
it taps into how polarizing Sky is. And um, he tweeted at Eric Andre, did not get a response. And then one person in that thread said, yeah, he used to do merch for Westbound Train. And I was like, whoa, that's that's so random but specific that I felt like there was a chance it was true. And I even Googled it. I saw nothing about it. Just that one single comment. It's amazing. We all went to Berkeley together. All right. Um, so he was really, you know, he was really um, good buds with our keyboard player, Gideon. And um, yeah, he was like putting on these shows at like this like cafe and he was like doing his thing. And he was like hilarious all the time, you know? Um, and so like, we were doing like a long weekend where we played, we played like a run of shows going out to Chicago and then back to Boston. And um, yeah. And like every night was just like him, like in the van, like just like telling jokes, like nonstop, like just from the second we got in the vehicle <laughs> to the second, like everybody fell asleep and he was like still in there, like just doing his thing, <laughs> like <laughs> keeping the driver awake. Do you remember any of the jokes? Remember like in like early Eric Andre, he would do like that like hurricane bit where it was like, you know, like, why do like hurricanes like have all these like weak names, you know, like they should be like way more badass. And yet like I remember him like telling that joke as like we were driving. <laughs> so he workshopped some of his early material on a Westbound Train. There it is. There it is. He was like, but I I distinctly remember like he was like the energizer buddy you know like bunny you know what i mean like he just did not stop like it was just um but he, i mean he was always great it was always like really funny and he was always like such a a good dude you know what i mean um he was actually like a good bass player too so yeah was he a good merch person uh at that at that point like it was like so early on like i, I think we were just like stoked if we sold like anything at all, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so like, <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, he was the best. <laughs> <laughs> in Berkeley. In, in, so I know, yeah, I'd, I'd read before that he, he studied music and everything. What kind of music was he interested in as a, uh, as a student? You know that, I don't know. Like, uh, you know, like I, I remember like, just like he, he did a bunch of stuff, just like kind of like all of us, like at that time, you know, like all of us like liked reggae music, obviously, but like we were all playing a bunch of different things just as like college kids in music school. Right. So like, you know, we were playing in all sorts of like different like ensembles and things like that. So I couldn't really tell you exactly. Um, but just that I know, like he was, he was definitely doing like the rock thing. Um, but like, I don't want to say the prog rock thing but he had his own thing going on. That's for sure. You know, fascinating. So, I mean, when was the first time that you were, you noticed him becoming like a name? I think when he just started, like, I just started seeing like different stand up specials and then, <laughs> you know, like he was on TV and then he just like, just kept blowing up and like the adult swim thing happened. Um, yeah. The guy in Westbound that like kept in touch with him the most would, would be Gideon. Um, but then, you know, but like, I think, even now, like, like there's, if, if I were to text him tomorrow, there's like no way I'm getting a reply. You know what I mean? <laughs> Come on, Eric, it's Westbound train. Cause I would imagine that like in that world, especially for him, like it's such a different come up. Right. So like, who knows what kind of like weirdos 
or people just asking for stuff he's coming in contact with, you know? Sure. That was a much better answer than I was expecting. <laughs> I, to say. I can't think of the name of the cafe. I can't remember what it was, but like he would put these shows on and like, he was just like notorious for like at the end of a show, you would like end up like running around naked in the place. <laughs> like, total Eric Andre style. Were they music or? or- oh yeah. Yeah. All yes. All Asia. That's what it was called. All Asia cafe. Not sure if it's still around, but like, a lot of like um, a lot of like Berkeley bands like did their first gig there. And like they used to do like a, like a reggae, like a dub, like a reggae night. I think Gideon played in like a dub band that like did a gig there. I, I, I unfortunately never played at all Asia, but okay. So there was never a Westbound train show at all Asia. No, there wasn't actually Gideon just cause I, I, I couldn't remember the name of the place. I, I had a text Gideon. He said, um, you forbid Westbound Train to play there, probably for a good cause, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is true. <laughs> no, all naked Westbound Train show. <laughs> no, no, and that's the, yeah. He just he's uh, you could also famously drink underage there as well. So, um, right. so obviously big big hit with the college kids. But yeah, for Westbound, I was just like, nah, like we you know we don't have to do that in our hometown. How big was this place? It wasn't very big at all. Probably like a hundred, like hundred people or less than a hundred people probably, but which is always, you know, a good time. So would he like host it, you know, like introduce the bands and kind of do material too? I, I don't know. At that time he was just like kind of like doing like music. It was like all like his, it wasn't quite as like crafted as, as you know, it, it was just like him trying stuff, you know what I mean? So it was just like music and like him losing his mind. Like, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> that's one of the things I like about him. Is it like, it's he, sometimes he does like comedy, like stand up comedy, but sometimes it's just performance art and it's just weird. There was a show on comedy central. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, he did a whole bit where he st- was like doing fake comedy, you know, like corny bits. And then he like had a, like a meltdown and he just like ran off stage. He went outside. And he freaked out and he like gave birth to a woman on the street. Like that was his act. <laughs> yeah. I think with Eric, like um, just as all over the place as he was, I think he was always super intentional. I think he always had a very strong vision that he was after. And I think that's kind of like part of the, part of the genius, you know? Um, I think he was always really intentional about what he did. And just was never afraid to take risks, which is kind of beautiful. So we're, we're recording this on uh, the 5th. And so by the time this releases, you'll have dropped a brand new Westbound Train album. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Long time in the making. 14 years it's been? <laughs> since since a record, yeah. You know, and we, it took a minute to work on this one. Um, you know, it's like you set out to do something and life happens. And most of us, um, you know, are married and dads. And so we were just kind of um, all like figuring out how to take care of our families and, and all that stuff. And and I think, um, you know, when it came time to make this record, um, it also like some stuff, some stuff worked and some stuff didn't, you know? And, uh, that just sort of uh, caused us to sort of like regroup and retool. Um, 
but we all just had other priorities at the time. You know what I mean? So it was like, kind of like, oh, we'll get to the studio when we can get to the studio. So when would you say you started working on this record or songs that appeared on this record? I, I think like it was like five to maybe like almost six years that we started working on. We did uh, Stranded, which was funny because, yeah, it, it was that long ago because I had gone into the studio and done some other stuff um, prior to meeting up with the Westbound dudes. So yeah, it's like five or six years and we started working on stranded. And then, um, the next song was probably gutter. Um, and then we kind of like figured a a few things out, um, kind of retooled the lineup a little bit. We had our, um, our good friend, OG Westbound member, uh, Alex Stern come back in. Um, and then we asked our other buddy, Alex Brumel, to kind of start playing uh, with us as well. Um, and then once that happened, like once that lineup sort of solidified, um, yeah, everything just felt really great. And so it was just a matter of like, okay, when can we get back in there, you know? But like I said, it was just like life happening. You know, people having kids, people getting married, people moving away, all sorts of different things. So, I have a few questions. So the first one is, this album just got dropped, right? No, well, by the time it releases, it will have just been dropped with no notice. Yeah. I'm curious about that decision. Yeah. So for us, you know, we, we had talked to like a, you know, a few, a few labels and, you know, like post pandemic, like everybody's playing catch up, you know, like pressing plans are just like absolutely insane at the moment. Um, it's like taking forever to press a record and, and we just didn't want to wait. And so I was kind of like chatting with Vinny about it. And it was like, dude, let, let's just, you know, let's just put it out. Let's just get it out there. So just super inspired by, by the one and only Jeff Rosenstock, you know, oh. just, just let it fly, man. It's funny. Um, I saw him on Friday in Buffalo and I was like, yeah, dude, I'm just taking your lead. I'm just dropping this thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, so, you know, it just, it's just great to, to have the music out. And, you know, for us, like we spent a good amount of time on this record. Um, you know, it was very, very different circumstances in the past. We were always like, kind of like, Oh, cool. Like we got to make a record in four days so we can get like back out on tour, you know? Um, and so with this, like it was, you know, there are certain songs that started one way and then went into the studio and I was like, you know what? I don't like those lyrics or that chorus. I'm going to, I'm going to sing something else, you know, I'm going to say something else. And, um, it allowed us to kind of like mess around and, um, work with, a one of like my really good buds here in New Jersey, Stu Timpanella came to New York and engineered the record with us. So it allowed us to kind of like have fun and go after some certain sounds and just, it was more of a hang. You know what I mean? It was never like, Oh, we got to go make a record. It was always like, let's go hang in New York. Cause Gideon's got this really great space. Um, he's a part of this thing called the relic room in New York city. It's, it's a great studio. It sounds awesome. Uh, you can do all sorts of things there. You can, you know, do podcasts there, and, but it's just a, a great hang, a great vibe. It's in Chelsea. So it's in a great neighborhood. So for us, it was like, let's just go hang. And then, yeah, let's, let's write songs as a result of it too. You know, what songs do you remember really retooling? Uh, so the first song on the record, uh, you know, mercy 
wash over me. That was a completely different tune with a completely different chorus, a completely different verse. And we started playing it and I started singing it and I just, I just didn't like it. Um, Mm. And so that same week I had this other chorus that I'd like sort of been singing and I was like, you know what, let me try this thing. And that just kind of like hit um, harder. Um, Gunfight on the record. So I put out a solo record forever ago and there's a song on that record called pills. And so that song pills was always meant to be a Westbound train song. It just never happened. And so it ended up on my solo record. So gunfight is kind of like a rock steady version of that tune Mm. um, that I was going to sing the same melody, same lyrics over. And then again, I was like, "Uh, I don't want to do that. And so that song I actually sent to Alex Stern and I was like, Hey, I got, I got this verse in this chorus. And, um, he actually sent back some, like some verse ideas as well. And so we just collaborated on that and then that turned into gunfight. Um, so that was like a whole, whole nother thing. Um, same thing with like landlord landlord was a, a totally different thing. Uh, Thad don't take no mess originally wasn't an instrumental, it just worked better as an instrumental. Um, so stuff like that, right? Like it allowed us to like sort of go into the studio, do stuff and then walk away from it and chew on it and be like, Oh, let's do this. You know? Yeah. That's, that's a great, great way to go about it. So that you're not having to live with something that you're not totally stoked on. Do you remember any of the choruses that what, what those can you share with any of us, any of those uh, lyrics <laughs> that you got, ended up on the cutting room floor or would you prefer not to? I, I would have maybe, maybe like I'll, I'll start thinking about it. And like, before we're done, like some of that stuff will like, kind okay. of come back, you know, cool. You'll just break out into song. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I think like, for, I think for like mercy, it was like this other, like kind of rhythmic thing. Uh, that was like, da, 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 da. and I was just like, eh. and I just wanted, you know, I wanted something just a little bit more solid. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I realized that just made me feel like you know like the dude who's like grocery shopping with his headphones on and like little notes like accidentally sneak out while he's like picking his produce. That's what mm-hmm. I just felt like right now. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's when some of the best ideas come to you, though, or in those moments when you're shopping for produce, and then you have to pull out the iPhone and yeah, ex- exactly. And then they just turn into like little other things because I think too, it's just like. You know, you're like, oh, well, maybe right now is not, the, you know, it's all about like storytelling, right? So it's like, maybe it's not the great time to tell that story. So, so certain melodies will just go and get tucked away and just become other songs. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Like that rescue song is, is a good example of that too. Like that was something I wrote for a completely different project. And I was like, you know what, man? Like Westbound would sound great uh, playing this tune. And so it's like, sometimes you just have to like, also remember like, you know, who's going to tell the better story, you know, mm-hmm. the record is called dedication. Yeah. Can you explain that title? Yeah. There's, there's a few different things um, that, that go along with that. So, you know, dedication, like obviously just sticking it out. Right. Cause there's a point in time with like Westbound where like, we all just had to sort of like get back into the same room and just like, be straight up with each other and just like ask the question, like, Hey, like, do we even, do we still like each other? You know, (laughs) we were just 
touring so much and, and there was so much going on and like life was just moving and, and we were just trying to figure out how to like kind of get through it. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think for us, it, it was just like one of those things where we just had to like look each other in the eye and be like, yeah, you know, we do need a break. <laughs> Let's. And then when we got back together, it was like, Oh, cool. This feels great. You know? Um, and then especially as time went on and, and things sort of like sorted themselves out. So dedication to like just this craft, man, like, you know, we were talking the other day, Westbound is going to be like 21 next year. You know, Dang. it's kind of crazy. Band started like around 2001. So just being dedicated to this genre, dedicated to this music that we love, um, dedicated to this craft, dedicated to each other. And then also recently we lost um, Thad, our bass player, his dad, Gene, who, man, we just, we love him so much. He was such a great guy. Um, so many great stories. Like, um, they lived in West Virginia. Thad's family lived in West Virginia. So whenever we would go and visit, you know, like we would like end up in like the backwoods somewhere and, you know, didn't matter like what time of day we rolled in, whether it was like 4am or like 2pm, like he was always there with a sixer ready to hang, you know what I mean? Um, and for me personally, like he, he, you know, I remember even just conversations I had with him before I got married, you know, and, and it's, it's funny cause I, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't really grow up with my dad, but even like right before I got married, just a couple conversations where he kind of pulled me aside. You know, I was, I remember we were playing a show in DC and, you know, he kind of, kind of asked me some tough questions and, um, you know, I'll never forget that. I'll always appreciate that. And I feel like that's who he was for us. You know, he did so much for the band. He took care of us in so many ways. Um, so that's him. That's actually him. He was a naval officer. So that's actually him on the cover. So um, it kind of all came together that way. The record um, has sort of a peaceful sound to it. I think, um, I don't know if that if that relates to anything to do with any of that, or if it's just how the music came out this time. I think with Westbound, like th that's the thing, right? Like we were always just very mellow. Mm -hmm. um, like we were never like a super aggressive band. Um, but we always just, we figured out just kind of how to have our own sound and how to have our own thing. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think peaceful is a good, um, is also good just because I think like that's what finishing this record was like. And now that it's like done and it's finally going to get dropped, it's like, Oh, cool. Like I can, we can breathe. It's going to be nice. Let's enjoy. <laughs> uh, Cause also like, you know, we just want, we, we are very excited just to move on to the next thing. We just want to keep making music. So, yeah. Yeah. So Vinny, I know Vinny was helping you. But you're self-releasing it, or are you are you releasing it with Vinny? Uh, no, it's, it's kind of like a self-release. So Vinny and I have like this, you know, uh, project together along with um, Alex Stern called The Inevitables, and so um, we've got this this like thing called Specimen, where um, it's just a place where each of us can sort of like release art and drop art. Mm. And, um, so it, it'll it'll go through that. Um, but no, no, like real, like label for now, like no, um, hopefully we can get it pressed on vinyl and, and do more of those things as like the world sort of bounces back. 
But um, it's a little crazy right now to try to get vinyl done. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's no plans right now to to press it on vinyl. It's just there's there's no plans right now to press it. Right now it's just like, hey, you know what? Like get it out, get it out, get these songs yeah. into the hands of of people. And so down the road, um, rather than wait and try to have like this tidy, super clean cut release, it's like just get it out, man. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's hard to it's hard to, as a band to be like. You know, we're, we're, we're active. We're out there. If you haven't released music in like 13 or 14 years. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's, it's, um, I'm just super grateful that there, there seems to be a few people still kind of like curious about what we're doing and interested in hearing Westbound train music. So, um, yeah, I just hope we can kind of keep doing it. You know, I'm sitting on a bunch of songs specifically for Westbound right now. So. Uh, I mean, I, I always wanted us to just be like a studio band. You know what I mean? I always just wanted us to kind of just be like that band that like goes into the studio for a weekend and kicks out like seven songs at a time. You know, we talked in the beginning, we talked about Eric Andre, but that, that all revolved around uh Berkeley school of music. Um, did the band form while you guys were students there? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was while we were all at Berkeley, you know, obviously bands go through crazy lineup changes. Um, but it was basically, um, when I was, I guess like junior and senior year of high school. So like when I was in high school, I played in the Scott punk band and what was um, it called? I was a part of, it was called day 19, Day 19. There it is. Bam. <laughs> it's not a bad, it's not a bad name. I never talk about day 19. Yeah. I can't, I can't take credit for it. It's this dude, Jay Foley. Um, who um, was the brains behind that operation, you know? Um, but in high school, like my, my high school life was like very different than a lot of my friends. Cause we dude, like we were growing up in like that time in New Jersey where like you could go see Jimmy world at a firehouse for $5, you know? Yeah. Um, and so many amazing bands were coming through all the time. Like it's like when like newfound glory were like on their come up, you know, it was like, it was just so great. Um, and then the, the ska boom hit, of course. So we benefited from that. So like every weekend, like we were playing shows. Um, and so like when my friends were like all like going to parties and doing stuff, like I was, we were at shows, you know, we were, or we were sneaking into like New York city to go see like the bouncing souls at like the wetlands or something like that, you know? Um, so like my junior senior year, I met. I started getting into like more like reggae, reggae, like and more traditional stuff. And I met, that's when I met Django. It was like, I think my junior year of high school, which is crazy. Um, and then he gave me this like tape. So this is wild. One side of the tape is like stubborn all-stars live at TT, the bears in Massachusetts. Mm. So that was like already like foreshadowing. Cause I didn't know I was going to end up in Massachusetts anyway. And then like the other side of the tape was like the Ethiopians, like everything crash or something like that, you know? Um, and then him and I just like started hanging out more. And then I started like getting into the scatolites and I started getting into like, you know, just early dance hall. Cause obviously he loves that stuff. And he was like schooling me on a whole lot of things. So by the time I like graduated high school and I was going to Berkeley, um, I knew I was going to Berkeley. I knew I wanted to start like a band that, that was more focused on, traditional ska so like you know the slackers or hepcad and things like that you know um 
and yeah, it was just, I got, I convinced these dudes to do this thing. <laughs> I don't know much about, you know, what it's like to go to Berkeley school of music, but when did, was that your focus as a student? Was that kind of music or were you studying something different? Um, so I was studying like music business at the time. Mm. I was also like a trombone player. Um, so yeah, no, like I, you know, at Berkeley, like you end up playing in different, like, you know, jazz ensembles and different, different classes and things like that. So it was great. It was, it's a really great place to be if you wanted to sort of like figure out how to find your voice, you know? And like, for me, I, I was never the best player or the strongest player. I just knew I wanted to be in a band with really great players. Like I wanted to be like, I wanted to be like the less, the least talented person of the bunch, you know? Um, and that was like one of my goals for Westbound. And till this day, if you put us all in the room, like I am definitely, <laughs> I am definitely the least talented one there, man. You know, how did you find the members? Did you make like a flyer and put it all up around campus? Uh, no. So I found, I found, uh, Thad, we kind of like, well, I found our drummer, this dude, our original drummer was this dude, Henrik from Sweden. And he, we were in classes together and I'm like, Hey man, like he was this really super talented drummer i was like there's this like style of music called ska you know um and him actually like being from like uh from sweden he's like i'm a little like a little familiar with it you know um and so he we just started digging into records and then from there it really was like thad was like the guy thad was the guy who like was the most knowledgeable where you know he was into fishbone and, and kind of more into like third wave stuff um, so when we started listening to more of like the, the old school stuff, it, it really resonated. So him and I were the two guys where like, it kind of resonated the most. And then just like from that scene, that's when we like, you know, bumped into like an Alex Stern who had a really great band called mass hysteria. Um, and so it was, um, it all just sort of like dominoes, like fell into to pieces, but where it all changed obviously was when, um, I guess I should back up. In high school, I also met Buck from the Toasters and Moonska hmm. at the time. Um, so he was someone that I totally kept in touch with, like, you know, after I left. I actually, fun fact, I used the Toaster. The Toasters used to tour in two vans. I used the Toasters vans to move into college, actually, <laughs> <laughs> from Jersey to Boston. So Buck always was a great. I mean, we learned so much from him. Like he's the guy who taught us how to tour really, you know? Um, yeah. So it all just sort of like fell into place. But once we started like playing shows, that's where things obviously start to change. Right. Cause like commitment and priorities and, and things like that. And so we were always trying to figure out what the touring lineup was going to look like. And then where it like really solidified was when, um, you know, we were doing stuff, we were doing runs on our own and, uh, Thad was like, dude, we have to go to California. If we don't go to California, like I can't do this anymore. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the ultimatum. Yeah. You know, well, what was that? What was your first trip to California? Like, dude, it was great. Like the first time on the West coast, like we, it was the first time we ever played like sold out shows. Like we, we where I feel like we were more popular on the West coast than we were, um, you know, on the East coast. But after that, everything kind of changed because that's that's also like a fun story. So living in Massachusetts, living in Boston, um, we worked at this place called um, the Avalon, 
right? And there's like three venues that were like all attached. Now it's all like the House of Blues on Lansdowne Street across the street from Fenway Park. But um, that's where I met like Tim Armstrong for the first time. <clears throat> he was touring with like the Transplants and he knew about our first record because we had done our first record with Django and, and Django had sent it to him and we just kind of got the talking. And then out of nowhere, he's like, oh yeah, like I like your horn section. Like you guys want to play on a Transplants record? And, um, I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, you have any tour dates, like coming to California? And we totally did it. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, when's, when's the session, you know? And I was like, yeah, I think that's when we're going to be in town. <laughs> yeah. That's just what a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> just book the whole thing around this session. I was like, this is great. And, and like, literally like the week before I thought it was like, bro, we have to go to California. Otherwise I'm, I'm done. Um, so that's what we, when we did you know, we ended up booking shows and we booked our first run out West. Um, you know, and that's the great thing about like just the Scott community in general. Like I remember like talking to dudes like Chris Murray, you know, there's another guy named Brian Wallace, who's a producer engineer. He masters a lot of really great records these days. <clears throat> great player. Just like how it all sort of came together to take this like misfit crew out West. Um, but we were smart enough to recognize that like we needed something new to go out there with. And so we made five to two and like something stupid, like four or five days or something. Like wow. That. And then, um, yeah, all so like all for this moment, dude, it like just lined up so perfectly, like go to the transplant session. We're at Conway studios is like beautiful studio. We're like, you know, Tim is like sitting at the board and he's like, Oh, let, let me, let me hear your new record. And I was like, yeah, here it is. Here's the CD. Like, you know, pressed it up, like, right before we left. He plays the first track, and it just hits, like, so hard on, like, these big speakers. And he's like, you want to do a record on Hellcat? And I was like, yeah, yes, we do. Like, let's do it, you know? And that's how it all sort of came together there. Cool. Let's back up a little. I want, we'll, we'll, we'll talk in depth about Hellcat. But let's, um, so, you, so you call the band Westbound Train. So this is a song by Dennis Brown. That's where the name comes from, right? Yes. Dennis Brown's like by far, hands down, one of my favorite reggae singers ever. Like that dude should have been a pop star. You know? That song in particular has a really, really good groove. Mm-hmm. So, and it's a cool, it's a very cool ska sounding. I think it's a cool name. And I think you hear the name and you're not at all surprised that it's like traditional ska. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it fit with like our whole you know, uh, vision of just kind of being an American band influenced by Jamaican music, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. kind of fell in line with that. And, you know, and, and I can't take full credit for it because at the time our keyboard player, this dude, Jeff Pierce was a big Dennis Brown fan as well. He's like the dude that kind of opened that door for me as well. And he's like, Oh, what about the name Westbound train? And I was like, Oh yeah, that's great. Love it. Let's go. <laughs> Were there any other names you thought about using uh, at the time? No, there's <laughs> nothing that was like hitting. There's nothing that was hitting, which I know that this is a great movement. Like this, this would be great for me to just make fun of myself, but no, there was nothing that was like sticking. Nice. And when he said it, I was like, Oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, when you find a good one, it, you know, it, it just hits. Yeah. Cause like, it was like the, I didn't want to be like the something, I feel like once you put like the in front of a name, like it's got to be like something like really classic. It's got like, 
if it can't be like a doop group name passable as like a doop group, like it's not going to be cool. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, you're totally right. I found an interview that um, some of your other band members did like years ago, and they said that one of your influences as a songwriter was country music. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like for me, one of the, the, the like litmus tests was like, do these songs like sort of like work as country tunes, you know? Um, like, do they, is there a story there is like the chorus, like is, is the hook there? Is it memorable? You know, can it, can it move a room, um, in that style, um, versus, you know, just like playing at ska and hearing at ska, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, that that was always like something where like, it would be like me on an acoustic guitar and, and kind of doing that, giving it that vibe. And if it passed that test, then it was like, yeah, man, let's go. So are there country demos of Westbound songs out there? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's demos on my phone of, brand new Westbound songs that no one's heard yet that are played in that style. That is, is very much that vibe to see if it, if it works. So if you, if you want to do a proper Jeff Rosenstock, this is the, this is the path for you. Country, country versions, a country record, a country record, which it's very doable, man. It's very, very doable with this band, especially, um, our, our buddy Alex Brumel, who plays guitar with us these days, he's also like a sick pedal steel player. Nice. So he plays yeah pedal steel <laughs> on gutter as well. So we got it. We got it covered. We can do it. Yeah, that's the hardest piece to find. So if you have that, you're good. <laughs> Just do it. There it is. Five to two, your second record. Uh-huh. There is a song on there called um, When I Die. Mm. And I think that, that lands on your uh, third record also, right? Yeah, we did. We always messed around with like a full, like wanted to do a full band version of it, and so we we did that on the third, yeah, on transitions. But so the 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 first version of it is uh, it's acoustic. There's no drums. There's like light, like horns, kind of fading in and out. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it sounds really cool because it's still still like you know has the Jamaican feel to it, but it's lacking the most important ingredient, which is the the rhythm. Yeah, I think. I think, and then when I wrote that, I kind of wrote that as like a slow, like six, eight kind of thing to give it that vibe to see if it was going to sort of make sense. And, um, and just to see if I could like really connect with it. Um, cause before that's the song, like before we, I wrote any music to it. I just, I had the lyrics. Um, I used to, at that time where I lived in Boston, um, I lived on Boylston street. And, um, we had a buddy who would go to Northeastern. And so like, we would go meet up with him and, and like have lunch or dinner at Northeastern. And that's a song where like the lyrics I just, I had before I wrote anything to it, but I, I, I wrote that song on my walk, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's one of those songs for sure that it was, it was like kind of like six, eight vibe. Was there a significance to the lyrics? Yeah, you know, I, I think, I think in without getting super super specific, but um, yeah, I, I think it, it's like that kind of play on like um, 
being sad, right? And but also knowing that like when it's all over, um there is no more sadness. You know what I mean? Regardless of like what you believe, um, you know, and I'm not gonna try to turn this into a big faith conversation, but um, you know, I believe when you die there's there is no more pain, there's no more sickness, there's no more um you know, sadness. And so it was, it was me kind of like sort of dealing with that, you know, and with certain situations in particular, you know, that where I felt like, um, I was already down and those circumstances or those people or those whatever, like wanted to bring me further, like even more down than I already was, you know? Yeah. Um, so music was just a good way and songwriting was a good way to sort of tell that story and move on, you know? This same record we're talking about, five to two, uh, Alex Alex from Hepcat does uh, guest on guest vocals on two songs. Yeah, he he did um, to know, and then he did um, soapbox. Five to two is a, is a really cool record that we we don't we probably don't play enough songs off of, but that was great too because we had met Alex. Um, I had met Alex when I was in day 19, day 19 did some warp tour stuff and him and I like became friends, like completely like not realizing that all these years later we would still be friends. So I met him when I was like 17, you know what I mean? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So like, that was always just like, a, and you know, those dates on warp tour that we got to do, I've just absolutely fell in love with Hepcat. Um, so yeah, he was just someone who was always like around and really supportive and, you know, he sings on transitions and his voice is just like so amazing and buttery and smooth. Yeah. And I don't know why I thought to myself like, oh, I can, I can like share a song and I can share verses with Alex Desaire. Like I had no idea what I was thinking. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, as you know, me being young and confident, the way you kind of describe making this record, you kind of whipped it out real quick for Tim Armstrong. Yeah. So how did that work with Alex? So with Alex, um, he was, he, his family lives in New York. Oh, um, so he, he comes and visits his mom often. Um, like he would always like take his mom to like a Broadway show and, and all that stuff. Um, and then him and I were talking, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. Like, um, would love for you to be a part of it. He's like, dude, I'm going to be in New York. I'm actually going to be like, you know, with his, like his chick at the time who was like in that, um, Tostito Super Bowl commercial. Like, do you remember the commercial with like the bride? Um, <laughs> anyway, side <laughs> so that's for you. We'll find uh, yeah, it. That's for, that's to YouTube later. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, he was, ended up being around and I was like, Hey, like, do you want to, you know, I was like, do you want to come up? Just like bang it out. Like just come up for an afternoon and, He's like, bro, I'll come hang out in Boston for a few days. And he like stayed at our, our apartment and um yeah, we like busted out that session in the afternoon and um it was super fast and yeah, we just hung out and it was great. So how long did the album take from start to finish then? Five to two, like no it can't couldn't be any more than like five days. It it really was super fast. Yeah, yeah. It was like all of us it was like the first time we had done it with searching for a bit, but not completely. But it was the first time we were all like in the same room live together doing stuff. 
and we were like, okay, cool. This is, this is how we should make music, you know? So searching was, um, at Jeff's place at version city. You recorded at version city. Okay. And, and you released it on stubborn. Yeah. So at, at version city, you didn't all record together. You recorded one at a time. There was, but there, it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, I feel like that was like me learning a lot about just like how recording works. And, and so, um, we did like certain pieces together, but we didn't do absolutely everything together. There's a lot more overdubbed, you know, um, where like five to two, we were all like, just pretty much there. Um, even horns on, on stuff like horns was probably the stuff that was like most overdubbed, but, um, yeah, that was like all of us were, were pretty much have eye contact, you know? That was pretty early in the band too, right? I mean, you guys formed in like yeah. 2001 and then Searching comes out in 2002. Yep. So you were a pretty new band at that point when you recorded that. Pretty, pretty new. Yeah. That's why like I always get mad at like, not mad, but like, you know, you'll understand what I mean. Like uh, with like a guy like Vic, you know, I feel like he's one of those singers that just sounded like Vic from day one. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like whether it's like, you know, um, whatever, whatever project he had going on, like he just always had his voice. And I just wasn't one of those singers. I feel like it took me a couple of records to figure out how to sing and, and do how to become a singer. You know, the, I will say this though, the, the, the title track searching for a melody is a really beautiful song. Yeah. That's the one that like, that's the one song on that record that like, I, I do still love. I do kind of wish we sort of figured out how to do an updated version of that song and give it, give it some props. So with five to two, um, when you brought it to Tim, it wasn't released yet, right? You had just made it. Yeah, we had just, well, we had just made it. We were selling it, you know, we, we, again, so go back to Gene Merritt, who, um, this new album is dedicated to, like, we started this like label ourselves, um, you know, and so he was like the guy, like doing mail order stuff back home, you know, like, super cool, you know, um, out of his like photography studio. And, um, we just, yeah, we had it, we needed something to sell and, you know, make some gas money. And so when we played it for Tim, he already knew like it was a self-release, but from day one, he was like, this is a cool record, but I, I want something fresh for Hellcat. So I, I'm, I'm looking on Discogs though. It's like Megalith, uh, Megalith, uh, Stomp. So what's the, what's the sort of release history of five to two? Five to two, yeah. Five to two went through some like some iterations because like that was like the that was like the record that people kind of had access to. So it went through like different pressings. Um, so from stubborn to megalith, and then yeah, stomp. We wanted to release it in Canada as well, you know. Um, so that's where stomp comes in to play there. So there are pressings with your self-release label on it. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if that's going to show up on Discogs, but. Um, well, but I mean, there are people that might have copies that have the original self-release label. What was that label? Uh, relative, relative records. Relative records, good, good name again. Bam! I love, I love <laughs> killing it with the names. Yes. I love alliteration. I love alliteration. <laughs> but, but I think Stomp it is the the label that kind of had like the widest like distribution. So that's probably why they. It, it kind of comes up with them. Oh yeah, but if you got it, and also Sky in the World was the Japanese version of it. 
It was called Scott in the World. <laughs> Scott in the World Records. Yeah. Oh, Scott in the is... World was the record. I thought you meant that they renamed the title. No, 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 no. <laughs> Scott in the World was another another label that that released it in Japan. Yeah, Relative Records is our was our thing at the time, and then yeah, Megalith came after Stubborn, and then after Megalith, um, Stomp is is the the last one who kind of took it over. Okay, so Transitions this is your third record, but this is your first with Hellcat. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the recording. Um, where did you record it? Who worked with you on it? So we worked with Brian Wallace, who um, is just great, man. He's, he's super talented, really amazing. He had this studio in Atascadero, um, and he was so helpful in, in bringing Westbound out west. Um, and so hanging with him and, and seeing his studio and kind of learning his vibe, like that's, we always knew we wanted to make a record there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was like a record where we, again, we were in between tours. Um, we were in between uh, guitar players. Um, and so we were actually like, we would record during the day. Our guitar player was going to leave at the time. Um, so we were record during the day and at night we were kind of like auditioning a few different dudes. Um, but with Brian, Brian was like, Hey, like we're camped out here a little bit. Like, let's not try to rush everything. Um, and even by camped out a little bit, it was like, I don't know, maybe like less than two weeks that we were there because we had to drive back from California to like, we had like to Kansas city or something to start some tour. It was like, crazy drive i just remember that um and so that was like where we would like wake up like we'd go on like walks you know like we'd eat lunch together like we'd buy groceries like we would like we were like very mindful of like the hang and the vibe you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so even though even though like we weren't there for like a month making a record like he made it feel like you know okay cool we can we don't have to like rush we can take our time make sure everybody's like headspace is in the right place. Everybody, everybody's feeling good. And I, I appreciated him for that. You know, it's a really good record. Um, to me, that's like a record. If somebody was like, I've, I've never heard of Westbound train, I would say here, listen to the transitions. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I, I like that record a lot. You know, for me, it's like, I feel like that's the record where I, I, like on five to two, like I, I kind of figured certain things out as a songwriter. And I, I feel like um, Transitions is the record where like, I, I sort of, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I I, I think I, I've got a thing here that I like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. So you guys are on Hellcat for, you know, this record and then the one after. So it's the sort of the mid to late 2000s. Hellcat starts out with Scott being sort of a major component and with ska, that's a little bit more, not, I wouldn't necessarily say specifically traditional, but more recognizably ska. I don't know. It's, I feel like by the time you guys are on the label, there's not a whole lot of ska on the label anymore. No, I mean, at, at that point it sort of just turned into like us and the Agrolites aren't even a, a ska band, right? Yeah. Yeah, like exactly. Regular band. Uh, us and the, us and the Agrolites and, and the Slackers had just finished doing something with them before, I think right before we put a record out with Hellcat. Um, but I mean, Hellcat, 
changed the game because like after signing the Hellcat, that's where we started to see like, oh, there's there's just these people that show up because you're on the label, you know. Um, so touring started to look, uh, you know, quite a bit different. Um, Europe specifically started getting, looking very, very different for us after, after that transitions record. So, um, but yeah, they, they were, there wasn't much ska kind of happening, um, at that time. I feel like, um, that period of like the two thousands was just like, sort of like the wilderness, right. For ska music was just like bands were just it was happening um but unless like you were like a part of like the ska boom like there weren't really new bands getting like any kind of recognition you know yeah you're definitely one of the few handful of bands that formed after the 90s that were kind of a recognizable name sort of a name that people still talk about in terms of ska from that period. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I'm trying to go back and trying to think like who else, like who else was like there with us. Technically big D started in the nineties, but I really feel like they're kind of in a similar situation too. I kind of feel like they're not, they're not really part of the 90s ska thing, Mm -hmm. but they kind of got pretty popular in that era. Yeah, I was I was just kind of put Big D like in their own category, right? Like, yeah, yeah. That 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 that's like yeah. They were. I feel like for me, because I remember like being a kid in New Jersey and going and seeing Big D, right? So like for me, like they've been around for a really long time. Yeah, but they got bigger. I don't know. Like they got bigger in the in the this period we're talking about than they were back then, which is sort of an unusual situation. Yeah, I can see that. So you have this sort of weird time for ska, but you're also playing traditional ska. What is that aspect like? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it. I mean, it was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, no, it, it was good. You know, it's interesting because I feel like we were figuring so much out, you know, and like the thing about Westbound and all of us together is that like, we we were just such nerds about it, you know? Um, so like, I feel like we were just figuring things out. And, um, and so like, it was very freeing for us. Like we never felt like we had to be like in this box and because like nobody, like we weren't really playing with bands that sounded like us, like unless we were like doing something with like, you know, obviously the slackers or, or, or agrolytes. And, and when I say that they weren't playing ska, but just like that, that maybe that period, that time period of music, you know what I mean? Um, it was kind of freeing. Like it was like, we can just do our own thing. And so we, we were kind of like the band that, you know, ended up playing with like, you know, the real big fishes of the world and less than Jake and streetlights. And so we were just that band. We were the different band. We were like the bastard child all the time, but we like really enjoyed that because we were like, we can do our thing. We're like not in a box. We're just going to be ourselves. And, you know, that's great. You know, there's three other bands on the bill. They're going to play super fast and super hard and get the crowd to like beat, beat each other up. But like, (laughs) Hey, like, we can be the band on the bill that like kind of gets the dance party going a little bit, you know, and by beating, you know, and like 
that was fun. That was fun for us. Like how, how much can we shift the atmosphere a little bit here? You know? Well, and did some, sometimes people still end up fighting during your set? <laughs> Dude. Yes, actually. Um, yes. Were you, were you there? I had a no, break. tell us about it. I am just guessing the, uh, well, there's only really, there's only like really like a few times where it happened. There was a time, uh, when come and get it came out, we were doing two nights at the middle East in Cambridge and, um, you know, couple dudes like started fighting but of course like it was like that scene right it was like that like sort of like um like that skinhead like reggae lover you know what i mean like that rude boy mentality and so i remember like being in the middle of the song and just jumping down because like nobody like it was the dance floor was packed there was nobody was getting in there to break up this fight so i just broke it up myself and i remember like walking the dudes outside of the club and being like, bro, not cool, man. You guys, work, you guys work it out. If you guys can work it out, come back tomorrow. But like, <laughs> not cool. I'm gonna go finish the show now. You know? How did how did they react to that? It was cool, man. I, I I hugged it out with them. Hopefully, they hugged it out together. I don't know. I don't know how. Like one guy felt really bad, you know, because he was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, man. I just, I've been drinking. I'm sorry." Um, uh, and so, yeah, whatever happened after that. I just remember hugging it out really quick and getting back to the show. You know, it, it, it felt like an eternity for me, but it was really only like a couple minutes. Um, but like on those, like on those bills, like when we were playing with like Scott punk bands, like fights weren't breaking out. Um, it was like Europe can get pretty rowdy. Um, Europe was when like you, you had to be like very careful of certain things. So. Like what? Like that, that crowd is just intense. Like we played, I remember we were in Barcelona playing this room. Uh, we played like, we went and played this festival. And then the next night we played like this, like smaller, like club show. And like, we're playing the set and this dude is like, like literally like centimeters from my face, like just mean mugging me. And I'm like, Oh my, I was like, this, something's going down tonight. It's happening. Like, I don't know what this dude's problem is. I was like, and I'm like looking at the guys and like, you know, Gideon's looking at me. He's like, bro, like, you okay? Like you good. And I'm just like going with the show, doing my thing. And like, when I would come back to my mic stand, man, like he would be like right there. And then finally, like we get done with the first set before we go do an encore. And finally, I'm just like, bro, like, what's your deal? Like, what's up? You know, like dude was so angry the whole time. And he's like, you didn't play my favorite song. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's it. Like, that's it. Like, you could have told me this like hours ago. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what do you want to hear? Do you know what his favorite song was? Can you remember? Oh, he wanted us to play, uh, which is so funny. The toughest guy in the room wanted us to play. I'm no different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's one time we were on tour with the toasters in Budapest and, um, we got into a brawl because, uh, someone from the toasters camp was making out with some dude's girlfriend. And he didn't really appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, before we knew it, we were in like an all out like brawl, like fighting our way, like backs to like the tour bus style, you know? So Europe was usually the, the places where like things sort of went down a, a bit more intense, but in the U S it, it tend to be tended to work out in our favor. I was going to say, cause you guys seem like you toured primarily with Scott punk bands. Yeah, we we did that thing, you know, like um 
And it was cool. I, I think in a lot of ways, I think it's the reason why maybe we still get talked about a little bit, you know? Um, we we always love just the opportunity to go and like win over those crowds. How do you feel like you did generally? Do you think that they were receptive to your style of ska? Yeah, you know, I, I think for the most part, people were receptive. There's always going to be like those those kids who are like, oh, it's like too slow. It's just like too slow for me, you know, you know. But I think it allowed us to sort of like form our own little thing. And so when we would go back and headline, like the crowd that came to see Westbound, like you were super into Westbound, you know, like you got it. So when you guys would headline, obviously the Trad Tradscoff fans, I'm sure they loved you, but was your audience made up of some Tradscoff fans, but some of the punk ska kids that were just down with you? I would say it was it was a really good mix because I think also like in the Trad Scott world, like we were the band that like Trad Scott fans were sort of like didn't fully accept, you know? It was either like you were either like the Slackers or Hepcat or that's it. You know? Um so that's why I feel like the people who like sort of jumped on board with us, no pun intended, like were were really down, you know. Do you know why maybe that you you weren't right for some Tradscoff people? I think we weren't traditional enough. I think we were like too much of like an American thing, you know? Um, mm. and, and like the slackers did it so well, right? Like, cause when you, you know, like knowing those guys, just knowing how like much of a soul head and a jazz head Dave Hilliard is, and just like how connected he is to so many styles of music from like Nigerian funk to like just obscure jazz. Right. And then, knowing Vic as like the American, like just the all American songbook and like huge Rolling Stones fan, like you hear all those things and they did it in such a cool way where for us, like we were more of like the R and B kind of American, uh, vibe and counterpart, um, that like, yeah, I I don't know. I, I, to me, it just sort of felt like we were just our, our own thing, you know? And so Europe, I am, I'm guessing then you didn't, it wasn't so much with Scott punk bands in Europe then. No. So Europe, yeah, Europe was great for us because I think in Europe, I feel like they are a bit more, like they were a bit like more open-minded to a band like us, you know? Um, But I think, you know, You've got the gears turning on this question. This is a great question. <laughs> I think like to go back to what I said about like being that band that where we were like sort of like figuring it all out. Like it wasn't really until like 2009 that like it all, all the pieces kind of came together for us, you know? Um, and even now, like even making like dedication, like going into the studio and just, just knowing who we are, you know, like I, I think we just figured that out a little bit later where I think a band like the Slackers, you know, and Pie Tasters even, like, you know, like, I, like, Willis is one of my favorite albums in the universe, right? Like, um, they all, like, sort of, like, people came along for the ride to figure it out with them, but it was, like, it was, like, you were supposed to figure it out with them, right? Like, that 2000s era was, like, very much like the wilderness. So, like, we were, like, in the woods, alone and then we would like kind of like be in front of people figuring it out 
and then we'd have to go back and try to like figure out some more stuff and then go back in front of people and figure it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was like, it was like almost like awkward, you know what I mean? Like they were watching us grow up. And then on top of it, we were playing with like, you know, bands like real big fish and streetlight and less than Jake who were massive, who were like, you knew ex- the crowd knew exactly what they were going to get from them. You know? Um, I think that's a part of it. If that makes any sense, you know? Yeah. And it's funny. Cause you guys, you guys form basically the next, you know, the next decade after. But when you think about it, you formed 20, 2001. It's not really that much longer. It's really only a few years later than some of the bands that were on that circuit. And, but yet you're kind of like, oh, it's the new young band. And you're kind of probably even still get a little bit of that to some degree. Yeah, you know, I think because, and because we kind of sort of stopped touring hard the way we did in like 2009, I think that kind of made it awkward. I think that if, here's what I think, and, and I'm not like a glory days guy, right? Like I'm not like a, you know, um, I don't like sit around and like go like, oh, like, well, what if, right? Um, when it comes to Westbound Train. But like, I do think that had we made another record and we we toured half the amount of what the way we were touring post 2009, uh, it would be very different for us Hmm. because we, we, we like, that's when like we were, we really were figuring things out in terms of like just sound and approach and, you know, being buds and being human beings as well. You know, Um, it's very different. Like when you're, you know, touring at like, 21 22 years old you're you're like a young schmuck compared to like <laughs> you know you know it, experience and, and and getting some some seasons under your belt you know changes a lot of things so yeah i think i think it could be very different um but again I, i'm also cool and and stoked about what maybe the next you know year or so brings and just again putting out new music because i think there's there is um a crowd of people i think i think there are people out there that are hungry for ska music and i think specifically hungry for the way that we do it mm-hmm. you know yeah i, I agree like I, I i'm not trying to be cocky about it like there's so many there's so many bands um that have sort of like put out records and um and it's great and it's cool but but um, I think we're just stoked that there's just people that are like, okay, yeah, this is cool, but like, it'd be really cool if Westbound put out a record, you know? Your fourth record, Come and Get It? Yeah. I want to talk about your song, Check Your Time. Yeah. Could be possibly one of your best songs? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd put it up there. Any insight you can give us about this song? Um, yeah, you know, it's one of those songs where, um, it's funny, I, I was... I was um, talking with Thad, who plays bass in Westbound Train, and I was like, "Hey, if Johnny Cash wrote like a reggae song, <laughs> what do you th- what do you think his opening line would be?" And Thad was like, "That's a great question, you know." And I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "I've been trying to like answer that question for a couple days." And then um, we were hanging out, and then I was like, "He'd probably like be telling like like some chick like." you know, I'm not, I'm not just drinking to forget you. 
Like I'm trying to cash, man. I drink as I drink, you know? <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah. And then like, that's just how it all kind of came about. And there was, we had a couple friends like kind of going through some things at the time. So I, I think like that question of like, what would, what would, you know, Johnny Cash's opening line in a reggae song be uh, tied in with some, some life stuff that was going on with some of our friends at the time. Um, that song just sort of came out in like, I think like less than 30 seconds. You know? Wow. I'm actually curious. Um, you guys do have quite a bit of reggae in your, in your music, quite a few reggae songs. Yeah. Did you ever play with reggae bands to reggae audiences? So when we were first starting out, like a, like, you know, a place where like we sort of cut our teeth and like learned how to like move a room. Um, there was this venue called the wild hair in Chicago and it was like a straight up reggae venue. You know what I mean? Like, um, we were literally playing with like acts like from Jamaica, but like modern, like modern reggae, you know what I mean? So luckily the owner and the booker of the room loved like old rock steady. So like when we would go play there, we would play a ton of like rock steady covers and throw our songs in there and do our thing, you know? Um, and it was like one of the first times we're like, oh man, if we can move this room, if this audience can get down with us, then we don't care who we're playing in front of. You know what I mean? If you, if you get like militant, like Rastas, like just <laughs> giving you props at the end of the night. Great. <laughs> we want, yeah. So that's that's kind of like where we learned to do it. Um, but besides that, like no, like I think that's like a later thing. And you know, like one of my biggest, I, I wish Westbound played more reggae. I wish we played more reggae live. We ended up playing a lot more ska because we were playing with like the punk ska bands, and you know. But I, I kind of wish we just kind of played even like more reggae because I feel like, again, post coming post coming get it. Or that same time is when we, we kind of like really figured out, oh, this is how Westbound train swings when it plays reggae, you know? So in 2006, I think that's, so you played the Summer of Ska Tour? Yeah, that was us, Catch-22, right? Big D, Suburban Legends, Voodoo Blow Skulls. Yeah, and then and Westbound Train. <laughs> Definitely the uh, <laughs> odd band on that bill. And then you also played the, did you also play the Fall of Ska that same year? Real Big Fish, Streetlight, and, and Suburban Legends. Yeah, that was great. That was like a that was like a really great tour for us. And that was fun. We pissed people off because we were actually supposed to go to Europe, and it was supposed to be our first like headline tour in Europe. And we turned it down to tour the states with Real Big Fish. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like yeah, it sounds like a pretty busy year. We were kind of going for it, you know. But prior to that, like we were also going for it. It's just that like we were doing it on our own and, you know, gaining little fans here and there as we went, you know, having Hellcat, um, back you, it's a different story. Exactly. Like Hellcat definitely changed the game for us for sure. And so you did warp tour. Did you do warp tour in just 2009 or did you do it any other times? No, we did it. We did some shows. Um, yeah, we, 2009 is the first time we did the whole entire tour. Um, but we did like runs. I think we did runs in like 2005. I want to say we did play some shows. Um, maybe even 2004, we did a couple shows. So you did the entire one though in 2009. Yeah, that was, I, I loved being on Warp Tour. 
I loved it. It was great. <laughs> and I assume good, good reaction, right? Yeah, it was a great reaction. Like Kevin Lyman was so supportive, you know, um, I can't say like enough good things about that dude. Um, and so that, that year was just great. Cause like less than Jake was on the tour. So like, you know, I got to hang out with Vinny all the time and streetlight, uh, big D sorry, was on that tour as well. Streetlight was on the tour as well. So it was like a big, um, there was already like sort of like a Scott contingency there, you know? Um, Angelo Moore was like doing the Dr. Mad vibes thing. So like we got to do stuff with him. Kevin Lyman had us like kind of playing the barbecue every night. So that was great. You know? Yeah. What, what's it like playing the barbecue? Did you have to, um, serve or clean up? No, 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 no. So like, we weren't, we weren't the barbecue band. We weren't the, like, <laughs> we, we were not, no, we were not that, but like often he'd be like, Hey, we have like a late bus call. We can hang. You guys want to set up and play? And so it's like, yeah, sure. So we would play and just, you know, play a bunch of reggae covers, play our own songs. You know, at that point, like check your time too was like a favorite amongst, you know, some of the bands there. So like that always became a nice fun sing along. Uh, we would do songs with Angela Moore. Like we did Otis Redding's like Mr. Pitiful with him. Um, we do like toot songs. Um, yeah. We just got to like sort of nerd out and have fun. That's a fair amount of ska that year, 2009. Yeah. Super. It was great. And it was a fun tour. And I, I had just gotten married, you know? Um, so my wife was with me on that tour. So much fun. It was great. Yeah. I saw another old interview of one uh, with one of your, with some of your bandmates and they were saying that um, they felt like the direction that big D had gone at that point that they felt like the closest thing to sort of a similar style band to you guys. Yeah. Big D was definitely playing like more reggae at that time. And they were doing like the, the fluent and stroll thing too. So like they had this sort of like, um, you know, um, he yeah, has like R and B meets like old school, it was definitely vintagey, right? It was like this vaudeville vibe, but at the same time, like, um, it was unique. So I think we felt more drawn to them. A, they're also from Boston. And then B, they were sort of like the unique band and we were the unique band. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they, those, those worlds kind of came together that way. You know, I actually have a, an early year question. I forgot. I'm going to ask it now though. Um, I read that Mighty Mighty Boston's were fans pretty early on in your career and that they gave you opportunities pretty early on. Yeah, for sure. So like our first like real run was with the Boston's. So like we got to do, um, you know, like the Amherst arena with them, you know, we did like the chance and like Poughkeepsie with them. We did. Um, yeah. So Tim, at the time, uh, like kind of took a liking to us and, you know, that was like posts like rude international. And he was trying to manage some bands and he was like, Hey, like, let's just see if we can, you know, figure it out, get you guys, get you guys some help. And so that was like really instrumental too, because the Boston's had this like space in Chinatown. Um, and so Tim would let us, um, go and that that's where like i would book our tours like i would use like their landline you know because we didn't have cell phones back then and internet was lame um 
And so I would go and like book our first like shows and tours. And yeah, they were like very, you know, gave us some, some good advice early on, you know, about just being ourselves and doing our thing. And, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a good time. How did they, um, how did they discover you or became aware of you? We, I, I honestly, like, I didn't know until like a mutual friend of ours was like, Hey, do you, do you ever meet, you know, Tim? Uh, like, and so like, I was like, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things where, um, yeah, where it's just like, you know, at the time we weren't calling him Johnny Vegas yet because we, we weren't that cool, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was just like, he, he wants to meet up. And, and so like we did like, and we ended up at some show and just kind of talked and, and that's how it all, how it all went down. So what year was this all happening? Dude, I think it was like very early on. I, I think that was like maybe like 2003, maybe, maybe wow. in 2002, like 2003, where it was like, kind of like, you know, cause like that was their thing. They were like, just get out there because that's what they did. Right. They were just like, just get out there. Just like start touring, start touring tomorrow. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, they, 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 they hit the road pretty hard, pretty early. But it was one of those things for us, like, and just like any other band, right? Like we didn't start to get like any recognition or like love in Boston until we left it, you know? Am I right in saying that? So like 2006 to 2009 was the years you guys hit it the hardest. Yeah. I mean, for us, it felt a little bit longer, right? Because 2006 to 2009 is like when we hit it, the we hit it, but that's just when the more people were paying attention. But 2003 to 2006, we were hitting it in our own way, but just grinding it out you know what i mean when did you guys sort of come to this conclusion that um you didn't you you didn't want to grind it out like that anymore i think like in 2009 like after warp tour i had just gotten married there's a few other things kind of like going on um where i was like you know i want to go home and figure out how to be married you know like yeah, understandable. My wife is rad, and she, you know, I, I'll never forget her saying like, you know, I'll I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Like this is cool, but I knew that she wanted to do stuff also. And there's also just some stuff for me that just like wasn't feeling, um, like that authenticity was sort of like fading a little bit too. You know, I knew dudes were tired. I knew I was tired. Um. But I also knew that people like weren't going to say anything either. And so it was kind of getting strange. <clears throat> but at the core of it, I, I really just, I, I did. I felt like I needed to go home and figure out how to like do real life, you know? I haven't toured much in my life, but um, I did, you know, my own DIY touring in the 90s. And then I did a tour um, like very recently. So having not toured for a long time and then having done this tour, it was like, it was eye-opening to see that basically um, you can't really do much else besides tour when you're touring. <laughs> exactly. You know, cause we were, we were in Atlanta. It was on warp tour. After that tour, we were, we were supposed to go to Europe and we were supposed to go play these festival shows in Spain. Um, and so it was 2009, our manager and our booking agent were on the bus with us talking about, you know, plans 
And before I knew it, dude, we were talking about like 2012, 2013. You know what I mean? It's like, it was just like, Hey, you're doing this. And then these guys want to take you out on tour. Do you want to take this tour? This will take us to this. And then maybe this is a good time to make a record. And so once you jump into like new record territory, then now you're in an album cycle. You know what I mean? So like that year is that album cycle. And then they want you to make another record after that. You know what I mean? So at that point, I just remember like kind of like looking at my wife and I was like, you want to do stuff too. You know, <laughs> like you, you have your own ambition as well. Um, but at the core of it too, like, again, like being a kid, like I didn't grow up with my dad, you know, like that whole deal. Um, I just knew marriage was super important. And so I just said yes to it. Right. I just made this commitment. I was like, I should probably spend some time figuring it out outside of a tour bus or a van or some smelly green room, you know? Yeah. Was there any big epiphany you had about uh, your relationship and like what, like if you had to give old you some advice, what would that piece of advice be? You know, dude, I had no idea what I was really in for. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I went home Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what I didn't know. And so when you're on tour, whether you're a huge band or a small band or a mid-sized band or whatever, like it's an adventure every day, right? You're someplace new every day. Life is just completely different until, you know, but like when you're home in the same place every day um, and you're paying bills and you're figuring out how to do life together. Um, yeah. Like that's like when like the real stuff happens, like that's when you're like, Oh cool. I'm so happy that I married you because we can get through anything, you know? So that's like where I learned like, Oh cool. My wife and I throw us off any cliff. You know what I mean? We're going to be fine. Um, Cause you get those like early days, like those early stories of figuring out how you're going to just make it all work, you know, pre kids. And then you have kids and that's a whole nother thing, you know? Um, I think the only advice that I would give like old me and it wouldn't really be like, relationship related. I just wish I took more time to enjoy certain moments. Like I was always like the serious guy. I was always the guy that, um, wanted to sound better or well, what's next? What's the next move? You know, where do we go from here? Kind of thing, you know? And I wish I would have taken just certain moments to like appreciate it. Um, just more like just even just more like more time just more like you know playing the gorge at uh sunset like kevin lyman gave us like a a sunset spot at the gorge you know um on warp tour on the main stage and like that was beautiful but i was like i was so preoccupied with like killing it you know what i mean right like i just wanted i wanted to do the best job ever Um, and there's these, there's these really beautiful moments and, you know, people who play in bands and it's whatever, maybe it's a team sport. There are these amazing moments that like I have in my heart and in my head where I remember looking at someone's face when something like when you were just in it and you knew, you know, this is like those like movie scenes, you know, where you're like, oh man, like this room is packed and everybody's singing along to like every single word. And like, you're just looking at your best friends and you're like everybody is so happy right now. Like, this is amazing. 
But even then, even though I would acknowledge that in those moments, there was still this piece of me that's like, all right, get back in the game. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> um, where I wish, I wish I would have just taken a little bit more, more time. So when you, um, had this conversation with your band, were they r- disappointed or were they like, yeah, pissed off? Totally. Pissed off. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Did I piss people off? Absolutely. But I think in the end, I think a lot of people like later appreciated it because we wouldn't have done it. You know what I mean? Like we were just, we were conditioned to be like such road dogs. So we were just so conditioned to just grind it out and keep our head down, you know? Um, but I, you know, I think in the end it, it worked out well. And I, I just wish that we had figured out some of the things that like, we've kind of like figured out recently. I, I wish we would just kind of figured some of those things out sooner, you know? So like what, what do you mean? Like just how, how we all like sort of, like learning more about each other just as people and just like the lineup changes and and the lineup that we've like landed on now, which like feels really great. Um, you know, just like how we make music, appreciating, appreciating like what each other sort of brings to the table, uh, more now than, than maybe back then. Cause we were just go, go, go all the time, you know? Um, so I think, I, I think though that like, I did go through this thing where like I needed to just figure out how to just become a fan of music again though, you know? Yeah. Um, especially like Jamaican music. I, like there's just this point where I was just kind of like, cool. Like I, I, I love seeing certain bands play live, but like, I kind of just want to sit home and like listen to records, you know? And I kind of just want to like appreciate the genre more than I ever did before, you know? And so I want to listen to the Ethiopians and I want to listen to the Scatolites in a different way. You know, I want to listen to wailing souls, love and affection, like, um, a thousand times on repeat. You know what I mean? Um, and that was great. It was good to go through that. And so now kind of with this record being what it is like, um, the timing is cool. It's it's good. Um, it, it feels it feels good to put a record out. Like I, I'm really, I'm stoked on it. I'm stoked on everybody's contribution to it. Um, you know, I'm hoping that it's the start of a slew, like just you know, a slew of new music. You know. So five years ago, did um, did you have to do some? friendship repairs to get this going again or had that been happening over the last you know decade and a half no i I think i think for for the most part it wasn't a ton of like friendship repair as much as like it was like everybody sort of like figuring out their own stuff you know what i mean like you, you got guys like rich and thad you know they had something called the void union rich does this other band called you know, it started as like the Brooklyn Attractors. Um, and now it's the Attractors because he's back living in, in Massachusetts. But, you know, I think everybody like kind of was do- started doing their own thing. And like that was that was OK. You know, I, I have a good feeling about how people are going to react to this record. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope we get to kind of, you know, I hope we get to play some shows around it. Um, if we don't, that's OK, too. I think for me. 
Like I really just, um, yeah, for me, it's, I, I just really want to keep making, making music. Um, so but yeah, that's, that's the, uh, because at the end of the day, like I am sitting on like a whole lot of new Westbound songs. Cause that's the other thing too. Like I stopped writing for Westbound for like a minute, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, then you did again. <laughs> and it's, it's funny. It's like, it's very much like being in a relationship. I feel like there's songs that like I write or there's things that I do. Like even like when we're working on like inevitable stuff, there's like certain things that'll come out or if I'm, I'm working on something else where I'm just like, Oh, that's a Westbound thing. Like I can't give that to anybody else. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't cheat on those guys. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska you will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode and access to the in defense of ska discord in defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well co-host adam davis has an amazing band called omnigon give them a follow on instagram and twitter It's simply at Omnig. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How'd people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.